0: traitors, once known as the Vesalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the Golden State Killer were one and the same, Joseph James D'Angelo. It was one of the most complicated investigations to date, and D'Angelo was one of the most puzzling. While operating as the Vesalia Ransacker, the behavior at his crimes were amazingly similar, and yet suddenly they stopped. When he reemerged as the East Area Rapist a few hundred miles away, His behavior was completely different. And yet, during the series, he again exhibited some remarkably consistent trademark behaviors or signatures during this period of time. Using science, it is this interplay of consistency and uniqueness among serial offenders that our guest today tries to identify and use to help law enforcement solve crimes. Welcome to the forensic psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on investigative psychology and linking crimes. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Gabrielle a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and head of their investigative psychology research unit. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm
1: thrilled to be joining you today, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you what is going on in the field of investigative psychology.
0: After taking your class, having you on was at the top of my list, so I'm so happy that we could finally make it happen. Just to kick us off, I read over and over again that a significant proportion of crime is committed by a relatively small group of persistent or prolific offenders. So how common are serial crimes?
1: You make a really good point of contextualizing that into crime numbers in general. And it is true that a a large amount of crimes are committed by a small number of people. Now, serial crime is not that common um, in terms of what we see in general in terms of sexual assaults and homicide, but they do occur. But the thing about serial crimes is that the impact is huge on the community in terms of fear and impact, and obviously on the victims and the victims' families and on police resources as well. But it also depends on what kind of serial crime you're talking about, because most people, when they hear the word serial crime, they focus on violent crime like serial homicide and serial sexual assault. But most offenders will commit numerous crimes one after the other, ranging from burglaries, uh, car theft,
0: and many other kinds of crimes as well. I know it's such a complicated topic, I think. How have police officers or law enforcement traditionally linked crimes together, serial crimes?
1: That's a really good question. So law enforcement, the first thing to to always put out there is that law enforcement have an enormous amount of experience and training in dealing with crimes. They are the ones on the front line. And traditionally, as the, the field of law enforcement has developed, They've been using forensic evidence and investigative uh, experience and skills and training in order to link crime. So when I'm talking about forensic evidence, what I'm referring to are things like originally things like fingerprinting or DNA or blood type, different things like that fibers. And so the physical things, the sort of things that actually stand up in court afterwards. So they've been using that to link crimes. Obviously, a lot of the time, we don't have forensic evidence uh, at a crime scene. It can have been either not present, they didn't leave it, they wore gloves, or if there was a sexual assault over a condom, or it can have been compromised when it was collected, or simply the quality of the forensic evidence wasn't good enough, or it was removed by the offender. So all of that can obviously lend difficulties to investigations, and that is really when psychology comes in because we're adding that additional element of, of being able to provide just another tool that police officers and investigators can use when they go to the crime scene. But then, there are other things that law enforcement also use, particularly if there are witnesses or victims, interviewing and then just generally canvassing the areas. There are, there are an enormous amount of tools over and beyond psychology that is already present in law enforcement.
0: I was actually stunned to read that physical evidence is left at the scene about 50% of the time, that there are so many situations in which there is no physical evidence, as you just pointed out. And so how does psychology come into play?
1: That's a really good question, because people, I think... There's a lot of confusion between if you want forensic psychology and or psychology in general and forensic science so forensic science is very much if you think about it the biology and the chemistry of the crime scene so that's your blood spatter analysis bodily fluids fingerprinting that kind of thing that you would collect and and analyze. Psychology is different. The thing with forensic evidence, like I was saying before, is that it can be compromised, it can simply not be present, or if you don't have your offender in your database, then you can't link what is happening at the crime scene to a potential offender, or even a potential different crime to make sure that you have two crimes that are linked together in a series. Now, what psychology does, the idea here behind that is that we focus on the one thing that can never actually um, be removed from a crime scene and that is the behavioral evidence. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you have even an offender who engages in forensic evidence removal behavior. He might wear gloves or when he commits the crime, he might wipe the surfaces away. Or if, let's say it was a murder, he will maybe wrap up the body, put it in the trunk of his car, drive the body many miles away and bury the body in the forest. From a forensic perspective, the larger pieces of the evidence have been removed from the crime scene, the fingerprints, the forensic evidence, and the body of the victim. But psychologically, what you have here, when you look at it, even if there is not a victim present at the crime scene, and even if the evidence has been wiped away, you have the behavioral evidence of what the offender did, the actions the offender engaged in. So you're dealing with an offender, a specific type of offender who chooses to use certain behaviors when he commits a crime. And I say he because most crimes, particularly violent crime, are committed by men. Obviously, there are some that are committed by women as well. But just you know, for for an example's sake, in, in in this example, and he would have the fact that he came prepared, or the fact that he thought about removing the evidence after the crime happened, and even. The fact that he would have thought about bringing a car, bringing a blanket to wrap the victim in, and removing the victim from the crime scene, even him taking the time to do, tells us something about the cognition of the offender, how he was thinking, how he was handling stress in that particular situation, which tells us something about his experience level, possibly. and. The fact that he was still, even with his committing a crime, it's still a high emotion crime, a behavior. And the fact that he was still able to drive and not speed and not get caught by highway patrol on the way. And then, then that he went out and he brought a shovel. All of these things are behavioral pieces of information that to psychologists are extremely rich in terms of finding out what happened at the crime scene. Those things, even if you remove the body and it's not there, that is still a behavior. And that's why we can focus on that and use it.
0: So what are the assumptions about behaviorally linking crimes? Because it sounds like like you're saying that even if that removing forensic evidence is a problem in terms of the physical evidence, but it's also information in terms of behavioral evidence. So there, there've got to be some assumptions I know that underlie psychology in looking at offender behavior, particularly at a crime scene.
1: Mm-hmm. It depends on what you mean with the assumptions behind linking, because we, we deal with two different aspects of crime scene analysis in investigator psychology. One is we look at the crime scene and we analyze the crime scene to come up, if you want, with a pen picture of the general type of offender who may be responsible. And then we would use that to prioritize lines of inquiry that we, and and that process we call that offender profiling. There's another linking, if you want, that we do, and that is between two separate crime scenes where we're trying to understand whether two separate crime scenes are in fact committed by the same person so that we can pool our resources and then start looking for, in this case, a serial offender. Assumptions are slightly different depending on which one it is that you're looking at.
0: I think what I was thinking about was just the idea that, for example, that offenders that commit serial crimes, the same serial Mm -hmm. crimes, might tend to behave consistently across Mm -hmm. crime scenes and looking for those links between them. But at the same time, they've got to be different enough from other offenders that you can differentiate them and trying to get a sense of how that works practically when you are out in the field.
1: Absolutely, I think the largest assumption, and this really was an assumption until very recently, a myth. I would go as far to say is that people are consistent, and that in the sense that they always do the same thing. We've all seen the TV shows. We have all read Sherlock Holmes, who is focus- focusing on the clue, or we movies like, which was very influential in the field, and that a lot of people got interested in this. Things like *Silence of the Lamb with the offender putting a moth in and the victim's mouth at each one of the crime scenes. That's what we call a signature. So the idea or the assumption was that a serial offender, there was something about them that would drive them to commit these crimes. And in committing these crimes, they would leave this type of personal sort of calling card, if you want, uh, which could range from very specific behaviors like leaving that moth, or positioning the body in a particular way, or doing it in a particular location, or focusing on a specific type of victim. And it's this consistency that we have as an assumption that will allow us to link one crime scene to the next. Now, until very recently, because there was no scientific evidence that actually provided us with any backing that showed that this was the case, we didn't actually know if offenders were consistent or not. We didn't have any numbers on it until very recently. So that is one thing that is um, that people look at is that behavioral consistency. And then the other thing is if they are going to be consistent, if there is something that is going to be the same from crime scene to crime scene, what exactly is it that is the same? Is it that individual signature? Is it the location? Is it the victim? And so it's about identifying the most important factors focus on when you're linking crimes and then as you very rightly pointed out it's not enough just to look to see what it is that is consistent between crimes you also need to be able to differentiate between different series because if everybody does the same thing then you can't differentiate one type of serial offender from another and that's another assumption is that all serial offenders are the same the, the question I often get when people first start out in the field is, well, can you tell me the, what does a serial offender look like? What's, what are the key characteristics? And my answer always is there's many different types, and they do different things, and they target different types of victims in different ways. So, so
0: how do you determine what factors are significant mm-hmm. for a particular offender?
1: I think that's where the science comes in and the training. So the reality is, when we've actually started to look at what serial offenders actually do, the reality is that they're not consistent. And they're not necessarily engaging in outwardly looking behaviors that, that look the same. And so it's our job as scientists to find the consistency in their inconsistent uh, patterns. So it's almost like putting order into chaos theory. And... One of the things that we do when we analyze crime scenes, but more importantly, because I'm a psychologist, I'm not a crime scene investigator, what I do is I do the science that I then train law enforcement on so that they can go and investigate these crimes and have this additional tool. And based on the science, we look at hundreds, sometimes thousands of cases, and we start looking for patterns. And based on those patterns, we then produce, if you want, a summary of what are the most important factors to focus on. And then we train police officers on it. Let me give you an example. So there's crime analysts. So these are normally, in some police jurisdictions, they are uniform. But in most, they're civilians. And they're working on the computer side of crime analysis. And they help out in investigations by looking for patterns. A lot of the time when information is collected at a crime scene you can have hundreds of pieces of information ranging from how the offender approached the crime scene, the types of weapons that were used, the types of victims that were engaged in, the the sort of activities um, that happened during the crime scene and everything from the violence, the sexual assault, even how the offender disposed of the body or even whether they left the victim alive, there's so many indicators. We know from decision-making psychology that the brain can really only cope with so many pieces of information at any one time. And mathematically, when you start comparing, it becomes very difficult if you have hundreds of pieces of information. If I could identify the top 10 most important factors to look for at the crime scene and then train investigators on those and provide models that they can use so that when they're investigating and if they're focusing on these and they see these patterns, they're going to save an enormous amount of time which eventually is obviously also going to save potentially
0: a lot of victims and uh, a lot of trauma in the community and resources. Do these factors, do they change depending upon what the crime is? So for example, burglary versus sexual assault versus serial murder? Yes, of course. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you're listening to The Forensic Psychologist.
2: back to the last time you felt healthy and energized the best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health sleeping better full of energy and focus we know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep but it doesn't have to be that way there haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampappa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit healthycell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844 869 9958. Welcome back to The
0: Forensic Psychologist. Our guest today is Dr. Gabrielle Salfati, and we're talking about linking serial crimes. So, I am a law enforcement officer, and Mm -hmm. I have a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. crime scene, maybe a serial sexual assault crime scene. What would the research suggest would be important for me to focus on?
1: So, again, it depends on the type of crimes, like you said, because the first thing that we have to focus on is what defines the sort of basic behaviors that people will engage in during a crime. And that will depend on the type of crime. So, for example, Many people have focused on the sexual assault or the sexual element in serial crime as the key to focus on in order to understand whether people are consistent over time. That If you're using something like a a serial homicide or a sexual assault, but a lot of the time that is at the very core of what they do. And so even though it springs out of this because it is so visual and it's it's a very visceral reaction to that kind of violence because it stands out. But that doesn't mean that it's an important piece of the crime scene to focus on. So one of the first thing that we do when we train officers is to make them understand, uh, and make psychologists understand too, and all of our students, that the type of behavior that we should start with should not be what defines the type of crime that we're looking at. And instead, we have to focus on what can help differentiate between what people do. And if you're comparing a burglary to a sexual assault and to a homicide, you're obviously also looking at different things. So for example, I have a um, what we call a coding dictionary. It's essentially a manual of what kinds of information to collect from a crime scene. When we started putting that together, we were working on homicides. And so we, have a, we had a lot of questions to do with post-mortem behaviors that the offender engaged in. And we found that these were very useful for us to understand what differentiated one offender from another, and also how we could link serial crimes. When we then started to expand this work into sexual assaults, what we realized is that obviously those questions were no longer um, relevant, and we had to ask different types of questions that were relevant to sexual assaults. But the thing is, we still wanted to understand how the offender ended the crime. So although there weren't any post-mortem behaviors, there were still what we would call post-release behaviors. And this is what is important in terms of psychology is that we're not always focused on what we can see. So that's the post-mortem behavior or the post-release behavior. What we're focused on is the psychology behind it. And the psychology is all about what does the offender do after the crime. And here is where we can start seeing similarities between different crime types, because we're now dealing with general concepts. One example that I can use to clarify that, let's say you were trying to understand differences between sexual assaults and homicides and even burglaries. And obviously what an offender does after he leaves the burglary site, whether he crawls out the window, leaves by the door or whether you know he engages with the victim at the, during the home invasion, whether he releases the victim during a sexual assault or whether he just lets her escape or tells her to do something specific or if he kills someone whether he just leaves the body there or again moves the body away. These are all very different behaviors because we're dealing with a different type of crime which means that it makes it difficult for us to train people on different types of crimes. However if we know that planning and how someone comes prepared to the crime scene and bring certain things with them so that when they complete the crime, they then engage in certain behaviors afterwards. Now that, if we know that is important, then we can use that piece of psychological information on any type of crime because they can pre-plan and post-plan in
0: any type of crime. How they do it just depends on the situation itself. And how would that information help law enforcement or police officer actually identify the perpetrator, narrow down a suspect pool? How does that work? In terms of the identifying the specific types of behaviors? Yes. So I know you mentioned there were two different ways in looking at right. crime scenes. That you, so one would be helping identify a potential offender or a potential suspect pool. And then the other part of it was linking two or more crimes together. So I think I'm going back to, if you know, the, the example you gave was, for example, the post-release behavior in a sexual mm-hmm. assault situation, I think I'm trying to say, okay, there's some very interesting and important science that's saying maybe we should look at these particular variables, or this is potentially psychologically what these post-release behaviors mean. How then would this help law enforcement in the training that you do begin to narrow down a suspect pool? and target individuals. Absolutely. So you
1: mentioned before the concept of consistency, behavioral consistency. This is like the psychological term we use when we're trying to understand how similar someone acts from one case to another. That same concept we also use when we're trying to link the crime scene to the type of offender. So let's say we have a crime scene. One of the first things that we do is First of all, try to understand what every single offender does. Once we have that identified, we know that because this is something that everybody does at the crime scene, it's not useful to us in order to understand who we're dealing with, because it doesn't help us differentiate between people. Because everybody does, it. it's a common behavior.
0: That's just why. What, what would be an example, Gabrielle?
1: So let me think. So for example, if you're dealing with a, a homicide, right, a murder, the fact that the victim was killed, fact that the victim died that is not useful for us to focus on because all the victims are dead because it is a homicide however what is important is maybe how they were killed were they killed using a weapon and if so did the offender bring this weapon to the crime scene? In this case, they're, being, they're pre-planning the offence, or they came prepared to the offence, at least. Or are they using a weapon of opportunity from the crime scene, like a knife, a rock, a stake, something that is to hand, and this is much more impulsive, already now we're identifying two different types of, if you want, offenders. Or there are many other ways that we can look at, even if let's say someone didn't even bring a weapon or they didn't even use a weapon. And what they did was they use their own hands, they use their own body as a weapon, hitting someone, kicking someone, punching, strangling, that kind of thing. So what we do is we're using all of these different ways to engage in things. And we analyze the crime scenes to try to understand whether there is a difference in the way that the offender approaches the crime scene, the way that they engage with the victim during the crime, and then what they do afterwards. And by looking at those kinds of things, we now see that there might be different ways that offenders engage with a crime scene. And once we let's say we have three different types, right? Type A, B, and C, or In one of the models that we have, the offender is acting very violently at the crime scene. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of wounding. This is the kind of crime scene that is very messy. And you you have this sense that the offender is out of control when they're committing the crime. Or you might have another crime scene where you're seeing the exact opposite, where the offender has been very controlling of the crime scene. They've made sure that there's no forensic evidence. They made sure that the crime occurred outside or they took the evidence outside like the body of the the victim. And they're engaging in behaviors that shows us that they're thinking very clearly about what they're doing. They're not out of control. And then you might have another type of crime scene where for them, the offender here is engaging with the victim maybe in a way that it's not really about the victim. And it's not about controlling the the crime scene like the first two. This time, it might be that they're playing out a scenario that they need to play out. And so they pick a victim and the victim themselves, they're not important. We call this a a victim as a vehicle type crime scene where the offender is acting out their own script on anybody that they come across and they outline the crime in a particular way because it fits with what they want to do. So this sort of tells you a little bit about how each crime scene could be differentiated. Once we have that, and obviously for different types of crimes, we would have different types of models. And but once we have these, let's say, three different crime scenes, our next step then is to understand how someone who's very violent, someone who's very forensically aware, and someone who uses the victim to play out their own script, who are these offenders? Now, if all offenders are the same and they just act differently, then offender profiling wouldn't work because ultimately you're trying to differentiate what kind of offender you're dealing with. But if there is something that is consistent between how someone acts at the crime scene and something about them as a person, then we're starting to unravel that story and that understanding that there is something that is consistent that can help us differentiate between different types of offenders who commit different types of crimes but here's the crux a lot of times people focus on what's going on inside the offender's mind because we're always very interested in people's motivations what they're thinking how they're feeling what drove them to do this now although this psychologically is very interesting to us right this is what we this is what we see in the movies what motivated this offender to do this type of crime And it's very interesting and it's certainly very interesting to us psychologists when we get to talk to the offender, but it's not very useful to the investigator because they can't find the mind of an offender. They can only find an offender. And so we need to start understanding the more aspects of the offender that are searchable. And here, these would be things like, do we have them in our database already? So if an offender commits a violent type of crime, are they more likely to have had a violent criminal history? And if so, can we search for them in our database? And that's a question, right? There's a hypothesis there. If, if we see someone who is planning out their crime a lot more, are they older? And are people who are impulsive, are they younger because they're less, if you want, they're less able to control their emotions? Or, or maybe they were drinking at the time. Right, so maybe you're looking at someone with a drinking problem. Or if someone is acting in an area and maybe taking the body of the victim away, maybe they're engaging with the geographical area in a different way. And so you might be looking at someone who's local versus someone who's traveled into an area to commit the crime. Now, these things are very specific things that the police can use to narrow down their suspect pool. But here's the thing. Um, Narrowing down the suspect pool is not the same thing as identifying an offender. All we do as profilers or as psychologists is provide a way to narrow down the suspect pool. So we we don't identify the individual person. We identify the type of person involved. The police then will come in using more traditional methods and focusing on the top 10 on their suspect list maybe, or when they troll they through their records, and starting to interview those people, and then use general policing tools in order to really link them to the crime scene, such as DNA.
2: You've
0: answered this question, I think, partly already, but I just want to make sure that I and our audience understand this, because it sounds like the goal of this approach is similar to some extent from the traditional criminal profiling that we we see in the movies only to the extent that the it's the intent is to narrow down a suspect pool. Right. But the way you go about that it sounds like is very different. That's right. Because so, you're not looking or trying to get inside that person's head. No,
1: I don't know about you, but even people that we know in our day-to-day lives, we often have, you know, arguments with people, discussions with people. And very often we will say, I know you did this because this is what your intent was. And these are people that we live with. These are our families, our partners, our friends. And very often the answer we get is that was not at all my intention. And you get into that discussion. Now, these are people that we know, that we have a history with, that we've seen their behavior before, and yet we get it wrong. What's the likelihood when we go to a crime scene and we don't even have an offender there and we simply have what they did at the crime scene, what's the likelihood really that we can deduce anything about what is inside their minds? It's very difficult from a decision-making point of view. And there's so many, we have a whole area of psychology and decision-making psychology, which is all about trying to, we impose our own ways of thinking on other
0: people. And so we make decisions based on that. And a lot of the time we're wrong. Because and, yeah, not only is it difficult, but it could be misleading and dangerous. dangerous because I've heard you speak about this on more than one occasion. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the ways our typical ways of thinking and interpreting other people's behavior and putting all kinds of interpretations that may or may not be there can actually derail an investigation.
1: Absolutely. So interesting because when we talk about crime scene analysis, everybody straight away goes to let's analyze the crime scene and find out who the offender is. And I always ask people to take a step back before and I said, there's actually this, when we're looking at a crime scene, we're looking at two different things. We're looking at the understanding the behaviors at the crime scene and we're then trying to understand the offender. But before we can even do that, there's another step that we have to do another element of crime scene analysis that we never really focus on and that is us as the decision maker, the investigator, the psychologist who actually brings a whole set of their own beliefs and experiences to the crime scene which is ultimately going to influence how they see things. This is just human behavior. It doesn't matter how trained you are, it's still going to influence you, right? The only thing that we can do is become aware of it and so I always say to, to investigators, the first step that we're going to go through is to make you an informed decision maker. So when you're an information gatherer, so when you're looking at information and when you're making decisions about it, you have to understand what might influence you. You have to understand that your brain has certain ways of doing things and seeing the world that you would never think about, but being aware of it allows you to step back and think about it when you're making a decision. It doesn't mean that it's not gonna happen because the brain does what the brain wants, right? Your vision sees what the vision sees. But if you are thinking about it and you're aware of it, then you can take that in consideration when you're actually analyzing behavior. So I'll give you an example. We very often tend to focus on things that stick out. We call this in decision-making psychology, we call it vividness. Something is vivid. It stands out because it has a bright color. It stands out because it smells strongly. It stands out because it elicits an emotional visceral reaction from us. It has an impact on us. And we know this from our day-to-day lives. We, we associate smells and memories with people. We, we smell that nice meal, spaghetti bolognese, and oh, that reminds me of home. You smell that perfume and it reminds you of a person that you love. Now those same brain processes actually influences us in many different ways and the same thing about when we're analyzing a crime scene because they're just basic brain procedures. So when we see certain things that have a high emotional impact on us, we tend to think that they're more important. We tend to think that we should focus on that and that is the key thing that will allow us to solve this crime or identify who the type of offender might be or that this is the thing that we should use when we're linking two different crime scenes, but that might not be the case. It just sticks out more. And so that's one of the things that uh, we would want to know. Another thing, another example, let me think. Oh, this is a great one. So we call it the Barnum effect. So, and this is another sort of decision-making, social psychological principle. And we've all read our horoscopes, right? And even those amongst us who are scientists and we say we don't do it. We still love it because it, it, it is a great story and everybody loves to answer a questionnaire and find out about who we are. And so you would be answering this questionnaire and you'll be doing your horoscope and you'd say, I'm a Leo. And you would read the thing on the Leo thing or Capricorn. You would read the thing about the Capricorn and you would read it and you would normally go, oh, this is exactly like me. Yes, this is me. This is me. Oh, that one's not so true, but that one doesn't. This one does. What studies have shown us is you can give someone a horoscope sort of summary that has 50% on there that matches who you are and 50% that doesn't match who you are. And what is really interesting is that people literally will not see what doesn't match what they think they are. And so when you ask them afterwards, do you think this horoscope is you? They'll go, of course, yeah, this is amazing. And even when you give exactly the same horoscope to many different people, and it doesn't matter really what sign they are, but it says the same thing, all of them will say that they, they will pick out 50% of what matches them and leave out the other 50%. I'm saying 50%, I'm just using that as a round figure, but approximately. And what that tells us is that when someone comes to a crime scene, we have to be very aware that when you look at information that you see everything that is actually there, not just what is there that confirms your pre-existing beliefs about something that matches the picture that you have in your head about what might have happened here. We also call this confirmation bias. And so those are some of the basic if you want, social psychology principles that we have in our lives every single day that also applies at the crime scene. And so before we analyze a crime scene, we really have to make sure that we all understand that we're all victims of these processes in our minds. They're not gonna go away, but we might mitigate it and the effects of them by being aware of them. So we're becoming what I always call an informed decision maker.
0: So I was just sitting here thinking as you were talking about what might be an example of the vividness error in the crime scene, I would think maybe perhaps extreme violence. I mean, what are some things that you have heard about or seen that has captured the attention of investigators that probably was a red herring to some extent?
1: there are many things that people will focus on that come under that umbrella of vividness. But one thing that particularly in in the area of homicide, a particularly extreme homicide, like serial homicide that I hear a lot, is the word overkill. There was Mm. overkill at the crime scene. Now, straight away, when I say the word overkill, immediately in our head, we can probably picture what overkill looks like to us. Now, the first thing to keep in mind is we probably have a different idea of what overkill is. So we're all going to think about it slightly differently, which is already a problem when all of us have to approach a crime scene in the same way, if we're trained in the same techniques. But the other thing is, it's very vague. What does overkill actually mean? The official definition of overkill is anything that goes over and beyond what is needed to kill the victim. But when we think about it, we have this idea that extreme violence that that the offender engages in and because they did this it tells us something about who they are and very often i'll hear people say yeah he was a complete psychopath and then they'll start using a lot of words that links in with extreme violence even though psychopathy and violence don't always go together but this is what we hear from the media and so people will, will start thinking about that and because of that they will approach the crime scene in a very different way and it may not be the case the other thing is if someone has been wounded on their face, this is something that's very vivid because when we look at someone's face, that's how we identify other people. That's how we emotionally connect with other people. And so when, if you get slapped in the face, that feels very different from being, I don't know, punched on the shoulder. It feels personal. And because it feels personal when we see that happening to someone else, that it must mean that there was a personal relationship between the offender and the victim. And because of that, we're looking for someone who the victim knows. It may not be the case. It's just something, we, we call this in psychology, we call it has face validity. It's something that makes sense to us emotionally, instinctually. And that also links in with vividness because it stands out. But actually, there's not much research on that backs it up.
0: It's interesting because you can see how it would so easily, one thing would jump to the next, i.e., okay, this person or this victim was injured on the face. We can all look and agree or disagree to that. It's either present or not present. But Mm -hmm. the interpretation of what that means is the slippery part. Where, like you said, it not only has a connotation of, okay, here's the objective fact, this person was injured in the face, but then it becomes the psychology, right, of this must mean that there was a personal relationship. And that, it sounds like is the dangerous part, because if mm-hmm. we then assume that, we are going to be probably narrowing our suspect pool in, in a pretty clear direction. Exactly. And I,
1: I think that Yuli really hit the nail on the head there by talking about what things mean And I think this is where psychology really comes in because if you're not basing your analysis on things that are objective, things that are based in science and that have actually been shown to link into what you're doing. So certain behaviors actually are the important ones to differentiate one crime scene from another, differentiate one offender from another, or link one crime scene to another. If we haven't identified the important things that we focus on, then it will change. And if we interpret it differently, that meaning that we bring in to the interpretation is going to change, absolutely. and It's gonna have a domino knock-on effect in that investigation. And so it is absolutely crucial that what we give investigators to work with is founded in science and that has been shown that when you are linking a behavior to what it means, that actually is supported by the numbers. But very often, particularly when we're dealing with violence, we're dealing with that type of crime, our emotions are at play at all times. And one of the biggest things that we train investigators and psychologists and everybody else on is being able to separate the emotions from the the very, if you want, clinical behavioral analysis of the crime scene, which can be very difficult, particularly if you're dealing with children or sexual assaults or
0: animals. We're going to take a short break. Thank you for tuning into today's show. You never have to miss an episode as our podcast airs on Apple, Google, and a number of other platforms. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. Americaoutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the Vision of the Voices, America Out
2: Loud Talk Radio.
0: Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. I know that the whole goal really of investigative psychology is to bring science to to these topics, but one of the things I realized I've never asked you is, how do you collect the science? Where does this research come from?
1: Mm -hmm. It comes from our collaboration with law enforcement. In investigative psychology, because we're dealing with things that have already happened and we're trying to make sense of it, we have to look at crime files. We have to see what actually happened in the real world. And one of the first things that we do is, or at least what I do is I ask them, I said, what are the key questions that you have? What do you need from me as a scientist that can help you as a practitioner do your job better? And so we have that conversation. And based on what they say, we identify key areas. We then start a collaboration. And normally we would get, for example, crime files to look at. So I don't necessarily go and interview offenders. I will, I will look at the crime files and look at the evidence, everything that happened. So again, if we're going back to homicide or sexual assaults, we would normally have in a crime file would be things like crime scene photographs. We would have a, a statement if there was a victim in terms of what happened and what they can remember happening. If there were any witnesses, we would have a forensic report of evidence at the crime scene. We might have a photograph of the, the general area so that we get a sense of the geographical layout. And we would be using this as our basis. And we would extract information from that into numbers. And that is a really complicated, uh, highly um, intricate process where we're translating something in in the real world into numbers that we can use and put into a computer and do statistical analysis on and run, you know, the mathematics, looking for patterns. And the analysis tools that we have allow us to do that. But we still have to identify what are the most important factors to focus on. And so there's a lot of work that goes into that. Then when we have that, we then come up with models of behavior. Essentially what that is our recipes for analyzing a crime scene and being able to link a crime scene to a specific type of offender or being able to link two crime scenes together. Once we have done that process, which can sometimes take years, we then create a training course and we then train a youth forensic psychologists, police officers, investigators, crime analysts on how to use this information. But more than that, how to think about a crime scene differently, because you're handing, if you want, the, the control and the power back to the investigators who are the ones who really know how to investigate properly. And this is simply just another tool that we give them. We make sure that it's reliable. I'm going to use medicine as another example. When you go and you often see the doctor sort of put something into a computer, looking for the, you can do it with MD yourself. You put in, these are my symptoms. Based on those symptoms, we know that this relates to this type of illness. And so if you have this type of illness, you're gonna need this type of medication. We do the same thing with crime scene analysis. We identify what the symptoms are. So these are the behaviors of the crime scene. Then we analyze it and based on the analysis, we figure out what is the different type of crime scene. And then based on the crime scene that we have, we then say, if you have this type of crime scene, then you're looking for this type of offender. So the process is very similar, except that obviously we're dealing with a very different situation.
0: So it's interesting because as psychologists, we are, of course, used to categorizing people, trying to put them mm-hmm. in little boxes, whether that's a diagnosis or a type, like the, what are the types of rapists, for example. But it sounds to me like you're actually creating types of crime scenes.
1: Yes, exactly. And again, it's about... Identifying the types, but more importantly, what, what is in those types. Now there's an example I always use, which is not really about crime, but it's really kind of contextualized it into the process that we're trying to do. What, it, what does a type actually mean? And people get very confused. What's, how is a type different from focusing on that signature behavior, the math? What's the difference between two? So I always say to them, imagine you just bought a house. And as is usual, when you buy a house, all things go wrong. And on day number one, the plumbing goes which is like one of the worst things that can happen and and you really don't want to be messing with plumbing because first of all it's messy and you don't know what to do so the first thing that you do then you, cl- you call up a plumber and they ask you what's the problem and I don't know anything about plumbing so I start to describe to them what the issue is there's a there's a thing here and there's another thing there and then I flush that thing and then this thing in me Bob and all of those sort of things the plumber of course doesn't understand what I'm talking about and so what he will do is say okay I'm going to come out and have a look at it and then we'll identify what the problem is he then has a toolkit he will because he doesn't know what he's about to face he is going to put in a lot of plumbing tools into his toolkit and then he's going to come to my house he's going to engage with the problem. And then he's going to use the most appropriate tool for that plumbing problem in order to fix it. Now, the next day, because of course, a new house still has many problems, I might now have a an electrical issue. Now, I'm not going to call the plumber for my electrical issue, because I know that he doesn't really know how to deal with electrical issues. So I'm going to call the electrician. But again, I'm trying to explain to the electrician the the light switch thing and then the light flickers but then there's that wire and there's that other wire next to it i can't really describe the difference and so he thinks i'm not exactly sure what i'm going to face here so i'm going to pack my toolkit and so he goes and he starts pulling in lots of tools into his bag that he's going to bring to my house but these are not the same ones as the plumber has because plumbing tools are not going to help him fix or deal with and then electrical problem, So he's going to put tools that are very specific to electricians into his bag, and he's going to come to my house, look at the problem, and then use the most, the best tool from that bag. Now, if we bring that back, that analogy back to crime scene analysis and understanding what a type is, what you have here is you have your plumber and you have your electrician. Those are two different types of workmen, right? Just like you would have two different types of criminals different types of offenders who are engaging the tools that they have inside their toolbox are those individual behaviors that they might do and because they don't know what they're going to face at the crime scene they have brought lots of different things in this case it's just their, it's just their experience their personality who they are as a person or they might be their toolkit for crime, committing the crime But they're going to adapt to the situation. But the thing is, they're never going to, an electrician is never going to use plumbing tools and a plumber is never going to use electrical tools. So in that sense, that is the difference between the individual tools or the individual behaviors or a type. So if we translate that into a crime scene, let's use the example sexual assault. Let's say an offender, he, his toolkit is about he really wants to control the victim. This is the psychological type that he is. He, he control is everything. Now, when he engages with the victim at the crime scene, he's going to pick different behaviors from his controlling toolkit that is going to match the situation. And let's say that his aim is he wants to control the crime scene because he wants to sexually assault and rape this victim. And that is the only thing that he's really interested in. And let's say the victim screams. For him to be able to control the crime scene, he needs to be able to control the victim. And so he might go inside his toolkit, which is, again, just his personality and his his experiences and his his personal toolkit. And so he might gag the victim. If he's very experienced and he's done this before, he might actually have brought a toolkit with him and he might have brought a scarf and he will gag the victim. But let's say in another crime scene, he has another victim and she doesn't scream. So he doesn't need to control her screaming in order to rape her. But let's, see, let's say she tries to run away. Now, if she tries to run away, he still needs to control her. And he's, he did bring the scarf with him. He's not gonna use it to gag her because that doesn't serve him. But he is going to use it to tie her up so in this way his type is controlling but how he controls using the scarf is different depending on the situation so the gagging is one behavior the binding is another if you looked at those you would say ah but the defender did different things and so they're not linked together but if you understand that both of those behaviors link into a deeper psychological issue then you would say it may well be that these two crimes are linked. And that is our starting point. So what when obviously this is a very simplistic example that I gave you, but we have many such toolkits and behaviors that we focus on when we analyze a crime scene.
0: And that is why using a type over a behavior is so much better, because it factors out the situation. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to put you on the spot here just for a minute. All the research you've done, and I've read many of your journal articles, so I know you've done a lot. What has been the most exciting finding that you can think about that do you feel like it's just been the most applicable, perhaps for, to law enforcement, or just the most consistent or something that's really been exciting to you in the research recently?
1: So many things have been exciting. But if I look at a recent thing that we've done, and I think this is probably one of our biggest achievements because it has come after many years of doing all of these steps building up the science and this is like a crescendo that we've gotten to and that actually comes back to what we started with when, when we started talking in this interview is this whole idea of linking serial crimes when back in 2005 The FBI had a symposium where they actually brought together a lot of experts in the field of linking serial crime. We had people who were investigators, who were scientists, who were journalists, who were judges, who were prosecutors, who had some kind of experience. And we surveyed what the state of the field was and what we knew that we could use in order to train investigators to help them link crimes. And one of the conclusions was we've talked a lot about it. But there isn't any scientific evidence we don't really know how to do this and and i think that was it was a catalyst really to start doing a lot of research and in 15 years we've come a really long way. so just to contextualize why this finding that i'm going to tell you about is so exciting 15 years ago when we did our first study in 2005 i did this with a colleague of mine and it was the first scientific paper that actually had some empirical evidence that backed up what we found And we found that when we looked at serial homicide offenders, we could demonstrate that somewhere between 15 and 25% of them were consistent. And we saw that result when everybody in the literature had said, of course, serial offenders are consistent. Yes, they use signatures. And we did a couple of papers together, one in 2005 and one in 2007, where we essentially busted those myths. And so actually... No, people are not consistent. And they're certainly not consistent when we're focusing on the things that people are currently thinking are the most important things to focus on. And we were crushed, 25%. How on earth are we going to help law enforcement if we can only determine consistency in 25% of people? We're going to miss out on 75% of crimes, which is a solvability issue. Is what Egger, what well, he referred to when he talked about linkage blindness. Now in 15 years time, we, we've done a lot of work on this and persistently asking more and more questions and refining our questions. And last year, it was even published at the time. I was so excited. We did this research that allowed us to show that it's not just looking at behavioral consistency. It's not just looking at linking in terms of understanding what people do the same. But it's actually understanding that there is a pattern to the inconsistencies that they have, and that if we focus on the trajectories, so the whole series and how people navigate through their series, and the ups and downs and the changes that they have, and we identify, if you want, the life course of the series, and it has a pattern there, If and we, we came up with in a, a new way of analyzing crimes, essentially, we went from about 25% to almost 90%. What that means now is we've identified a start. I mean, again, it's science. It's only one paper. But we have come to a place now, 15 years on, where we have identified the top 10 things that we need to focus on in order to link crimes and be able to identify a series that outwardly looks very different from crime scene to crime scene, Marina Sarachinsky and I. And we looked at each other and said, do you, do you see what I see? Have, have we actually identified this? And, and we had. But it's just a start because in science, you should never get too excited with just one thing, but we've started a conversation and we've shifted the conversation to look at the problem differently. And by doing so, we are hopefully going to be able to have an impact on law enforcement by being able to train them on these new techniques, which is going to increase their ability to link crimes and increase solvability.
0: I was lucky enough to be part of that group, and I remember how exciting that paper was Was and is. We are unfortunately about out of time, but I always ask one final question. We do have a lot of law enforcement professionals who listen to this show. And my question, Gabrielle, to you would be if there was one thing that you would want law enforcement to take away from this particular interview in our conversation, what would it be? Think
1: outside the box, increase your tools. Being open to that will help with approaching the crime scene in a different way and that will help with the job, will help serve the community, our victims of crime, and also make sure that we approach the issues in, in the right way. I think that collaboration is huge. The, the link between scientists and practitioners, it's a partnership that goes hand in hand and linking in together, we're bigger than the sum of our parts. I think that would be the one thing. And thank you for your service is what I would say.
0: Thank you, Gabrielle, for coming on today. And this is such an interesting topic. And there is a lot of exciting research going on. So I know that everybody listening is appreciative of the work that you do and the fact that you are helping law enforcement add a tool to their toolbox so that they can make our community safer. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. You are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. And we'll see you next time.